Welcome. Life Before Medicine begins right now. I'm Dr. Bruce Crawford, board-certified urogynecologist. This is part two of episode two. We're talking about pelvic pain. Our last episode, as you may recall, was an interview with Dr. Toby Freshold. We talked about pelvic pain from the doctor's perspective. And today, we are so grateful to be joined by the infamous Heather Dibke, exercise physiologist, soon PhD, and we're going to learn a lot more about pelvic pain, and in particular, the high-toned pelvic floor, her background and experience. Let's jump right in. How are you today, Dr. Crawford? I am doing great, Heather. Thank you. Thank you for making time to talk with us today. I've been excited about this. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Freshold. I felt that she gave an incredibly lucid and important uh, discussion um, about pelvic pain. You know, the details of which are the really salient aspects of, uh, as I went back and listened to it again a couple of times, you know, not getting discouraged, being persistent, nothing wrong with a second opinion, nothing wrong with a third opinion, and seeking out the professional that has an expertise in this area that has experience treating this problem because so many patients feel dismissed by their physician if, in particular, their physician really doesn't have a lot of experience or tools in their toolbox that would uh, allow them to have a reasonable, systematic way of approaching the problem. Now, there's a lot that can be done outside of the healthcare arena, and that's what Life Before Medicine is really all about, is closing the gap between the healthcare system and the general public, and there's a lot we can do in our lives to avoid an intervention um, with uh, the healthcare system, and uh, we're going to talk about that today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and talk just a little bit about your background and experience as it pertains to today's topic. Well, I am excited to talk about this, Dr. Crawford. As you know, this is one of my areas of passion. I love the pelvic floor, and in particular, the high-tone pelvic floor. In fact, it is what I'm doing my dissertation work on in my Mm. PhD. So one of the reasons that I got super excited about this particular aspect of pelvic floor dysfunction is that you and I have been working together for a while on Pilates. So we've been working on that strengthening program for people that need to improve the strength and power of their pelvic floor. Um, There's also that demographic, as you and Dr. Freshold talked about, that their pelvic floor is kind of too tense or too shortened at rest. So neither one is optimal. And just because someone has a shortened pelvic floor doesn't mean that it's a strong pelvic floor. What is a shortened pelvic floor? What what does that mean? Yeah, so the muscle fibers are just too tense. We can have muscle fibers that are elongated and we can have muscle fibers that are shortened. And the idea would be having an appropriate length tension relationship where we don't Mm. have either occurring. And muscles ideally are designed to move. So they should be able to shorten and lengthen depending upon what task they're being called upon to do. So with the high tone pelvic floor, these people have more of a chronically tense or shortened pelvic floor. Overly contracted. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I see. Okay, so when a muscle contracts, the fibers shorten, and that is how one might wind up with a muscle spasm in their neck or uh, pain problems related to Mm -hmm. uh, inappropriate muscle tone anywhere in the body. But when it occurs in the pelvic floor, as we talked about with Dr. Freshold, women wind up getting hysterectomies and ovaries Mm -hmm. removed and diagnostic surgery of all kinds. And so um, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about this and what your experience has been. Yeah. So I started working with women and men both on the pelvic floor for more of the need to strengthen the pelvic floor, the Pilates program. In doing so, though, I started to get different medical professionals, whether it was a PT or a physician referring to me for women that had the overly contracted or the too tense pelvic floor, um, which presented a little bit of a predicament because we don't want to overly strengthen a muscle that's already shortened. So the Pilates method wouldn't have been an ideal approach to begin with people in this demographic. So it really made me kind of go back to the drawing board and kind of think about how can I work with this group of people in a way that kind of fits with my background in exercise physiology. And my master's degree is in corrective exercise. Mm. So I started to really think about, okay, what's the function of the muscular system, right? Muscles are designed to move the body, but it's also a maintenance of posture and body position. So if we're going to move the body or we need to maintain posture and current positioning in order to achieve that muscles have to work in groups, not in isolation. So I started thinking about it from that corrective exercise perspective. If we have a group of muscles that are supposed to work together, think about it like a family. You've got a family of muscles Uh that are all supposed to work together, but that doesn't mean everyone's an equal contributor right? There's some muscles or members of the family that might be doing too much. And then there's other muscles or members of the family that might be doing too little. So we can develop something called synergistic dominance. Synergistic dominance. Okay, go ahead. Synergistic dominance. So that just means we have an increase in muscle activity in one muscle. And then that's relative to kind of more of an inhibitory response in another muscle, which just means one muscle might be doing a little bit more, another muscle might be a little bit more checked out. So if we think of it from that perspective, the muscle that's too tense or too contracted is trying to pick up the slack, right, for another muscle that might not be, you know, kicking in and doing its part. Um, So it's a balance issue it's a balance everything's a balance and why would a muscle do this well muscles do this in the attempt to either move a body part or they do it to prevent movement at a joint so if we think about it from that perspective muscles that are too tense like the high tone pelvic floor too shortened they're going to become dysfunctional right? They're not going to function properly. We get a decrease in circulation. We have a decrease in blood flow. This can cause trigger points and pain in the muscle. It can lead to the muscle not moving efficiently, or it might even cause pain and oftentimes does cause pain with movement, which can make us kind of hypersensitive to stimuli, which is just kind of a fancy way of saying that we're more sensitive to pain. So if the muscle's out of balance, it's not 
in balance with the other members of the muscle family, then mm-hmm. the brain might turn up the volume on the pain fibers from the mm-hmm. too tense muscle group. And as a consequence, intercourse might become uncomfortable. You know, and, and, and that, in my clinical experience, is one of the, if not the most common cause for painful intercourse and pelvic pain in general. But the high-tone pelvic floor, in addition to having a, a pain component associated with it, also in many ways can act like a weak pelvic floor. You know, it, it can present with bladder control problems. Mm-hmm. Overactive bladder or leakage with coughing, sneezing, laughing, or difficulty emptying your bladder such that you have mm-hmm. to bear down and push or you have a urine stream that starts and stops and whatnot. And I always caution people that if they're, sh- they're showing up like uh, in my office or they're embarking upon the Flotties program, maybe they want to take our monthly P49 course, and, and they're complaining of overactive bladder symptoms or urinary incontinence in general, but they also have this pain component, especially if it's painful intercourse. They need to be evaluated by a physician or someone that's familiar with how to do an appropriate assessment of pelvic floor tone before we start up-training them. Wouldn't you agree that you probably don't want to up-train the patient whose pelvic floor is not relaxing properly? Correct. Yeah, because they're already in discomfort. And then if you try to stimulate a muscle that is hypersensitive, more than likely, it's going to feel worse. Right. You don't want to make people worse. It's the last <laughs> thing we ever, First do no <laughs> we ever wanted to right. <laughs> Exactly. So, and it's, I think that's why Dr. Crawford, a lot of studies kind of show that women with this pelvic, chronic pelvic pain, they tend to have 50% more symptom bother than other pelvic floor dysfunctions. Mm. So there's this kind of constellation of symptoms like you just talked about. Yes, they can present with incontinence issues and pelvic organ prolapse, but then they also have this other component where they just have the chronic pain and pain with intercourse, like all the things you've mentioned. And that could be really devastating uh, for a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, men um, oftentimes don't have the emotional intelligence to interpret that as a neuromuscular issue, but rather maybe just feel like they're somehow being rejected by their partner. And it can create terrible discord and end relationships. And, and so I think we have to be better at recognizing this as a real thing and not just a real thing, but a real common thing. And, you're, and that these people aren't crazy, right? No, and, Even and if they've been dismissed. They, they are dismissed and they're, they're frequently kind of categorized as pain catastrophizing. Right. Right. But if you think Drama. about it, physio- right. If you think about it physiologically, the, the trigger points that occur and the hypersensitivity to stimuli and how that impacts the brain, especially the limbic system, which is kind of our stress response aspect of our brain. It, they're not catastrophizing it. It's actually a physiological reaction that the body has to alert us that something is not right. Since our body can't physically verbalize with words that something's wrong, pain is our body's way of telling us that something's not right. Right, 
Right, right. And, and it's unfortunate. Lots of, you know, physicians are dismissive if they don't understand the problem or have uh, a remedy they can, you know, reliably implement and get a good result. And, and so I think it creates a lot of frustration among patients that are trying to deal with this issue. Um, and, and so, we, so, as I said, we have to do a better job. And, and I think this is one area you know, where, you know, once the appropriate diagnosis is made, there's a lot that can be done that doesn't mm-hmm. involve getting in line at the pharmacy. It doesn't necessarily involve going to sleep in the operating room. There are things that can be done. And and I, I'm interested to hear uh, in a little bit more depth your hypothesis about the imbalance in the relationship between the pelvic floor and its common co-contractors like the transversus abdominis and the glutes and the inner thigh muscles and how asymmetry in those muscle groups might contribute to this problem. Absolutely. And we talk about this in the Filates program. We just talk about it from the inverse perspective, right? Where we're trying to um, activate those muscles to enhance pelvic floor activation. So mm. if we know that the pelvic floor is is heightened, it's overly contracted. My hypothesis is then, okay, it would make sense then that some of the other co-recruiters might be inhibited. Mm. And if we work on strengthening them, could we then... Um, kind of have the inverse happen and could the pelvic floor start to relax a little bit and it's not just the inner thighs the glutes um, and the abdominal muscles there are other muscles that work with the pelvic floor the diaphragm is a huge co-recruiter with the pelvic floor along with some of our deeper stabilizers in our spine so it's it's not just looking at some of the bigger larger mover muscles like we do in filates but some of the other muscles as well so so you're saying the muscles we use to breathe absolutely the diaphragm is our primary muscle of respiration or at least that's the one we want to use, right? We do have accessory breathing muscles. Um, we call them our upper respiratory muscles, like our scalenes and our neck. But our primary muscle of respiration is our diaphragm. And when we have that heightened pain response in the body, and it affects our brain and our body and brain's ability to communicate with each other, and we start to have kind of a heightened stress response, our diaphragm is negatively impacted. In fact, the diaphragm in a situation like that can't fully relax. So we don't get that relaxation pause that we need before we go to take another inhale. So the diaphragm kind of gets tight. And I often will kind of tell people I work with, it's almost like a canister, right? We've got the diaphragm on the top, we've got the pelvic floor on the bottom. And they have a relationship with each other. So if, if one's being, you know, hyperreactive, then there's a good chance that the other is not functioning well also. And, and it sounds like it might be a two-way street, you know. Pain will make one take more shallow breaths, but also mm-hmm. um, heightened stress might cause uh, a more dysfunctional breathing pattern that might then have a detrimental effect on resting tone in various muscle groups, the neck and the pelvic floor. And so, you know, we're always in search of cause and effect, but it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? They Mm -hmm. work in synchrony and they create a balance. And so saying, you know, 
one thing causes the other might not be a productive way to approach it, but rather just make the observation that these are muscles that are in relation to each other. They relate to each Mm -hmm. other. And when one is out of balance, the other one tends to be out of balance in a compensatory way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's kind of the whole thought process to how I work with people that have the high tone pelvic floor. So it's, it's kind of looking at the body from a very kind of holistic perspective, because we do know that there are also certain posture types that they're finding can be associated with the high tone pelvic floor. And posture is really, really significant and important. So if we're looking at the diaphragm and the pelvic floor and some of these other muscles, and we're talking about having a good length tension relationship, right? Where muscles are able to move well. If we have poor posture, there's a good chance that it's not just the pelvic floor that's not moving well. There's a good chance there's a multitude of muscles that are not as well. Right. And And so before we, we start breaking down the specifics of posture, I just wanted to toss out one more observation. You know, the the breathing technique known as diaphragmatic breathing that's taught in the context of um, a meditation practice mm-hmm. um, is pretty well studied in terms of its favorable effect on psychic stress, mental stress. Mm-hmm. And we uh, have already um, submitted that psychic mental stress can be related to muscular tension elsewhere in the body. And so the practice of meditation and and making the investment of your time and attention to learn something like that isn't airy fairy, you know, some, I don't know, alternative kooky, right? There's real science, right? It's, there's real science behind it, right? Absolutely. And, and it's not a huge commitment, but you know, a few minutes, a couple of times a day, can make a big difference, not just in terms of the muscular tone problems we're talking about, but your mental perspective throughout the day. So I'm uh-huh. a big fan. Meditation, and there's a lot of websites, um, or, or I should say applications, that you can download onto your phone that can take you through guided meditation, through insight meditation. And, a, um, and there's a lot of benefit to be derived from doing this that is a perfect example of what you can do outside the healthcare system to perhaps avoid an intervention via the healthcare system. And so I just wanted to, to toss that out before we, we drifted a little farther from, from the diaphragm and breathing. And, um, and I, and I do want to hear um, in more detail about postural variants that might be associated with this particular common and important um, type of pelvic pain related to the shorter, overly contracted pelvic floor. What can you say about those variants? Yeah, so there was a study done in 2017. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. I think it's Zuladeh did the study. And they looked at 22 different studies. So this was kind of like a literature review. Um, they were looking at a multitude of studies specifically regarding pelvic floor dysfunction and looking at certain posture types. So 
Of the pelvic pain group, so the chronic pelvic pain group, they found a consistent posture type that seemed to emerge with that group of people. And it was kind of more of the sway back posture, which is where your pelvis is kind of jutted forward. So instead of having, you know, we like things to stack up like building blocks, right? So if I'm going to be standing up, I kind of want my ears to line up with my shoulders, my shoulders with my ribs, my ribs come right over my hips, my hips and knees, and then my knees and my ankles. So it's almost like this nice plumb line where everything's like a Lego block that's nice and stacked up. So in the sway back posture, your pelvis would be kind of jutted forward, it wouldn't be in that center of the plumb line. Mm. They also found that the shoulders were kind of more rounded. We had that classic kind of head forward posture that we see so many people have nowadays, especially with all of our technology devices. Mm. Um, They had locked knees and then they had kind of really tight locked ankles. So that was the predominant posture type. I see that in women as they get older too, this sort of C-shaped um, form or posture with the mm-hmm. shoulders and pelvis forward. And, um, and it's interesting that that's been correlated with just pelvic floor dysfunction, which also uh, uh, seems to correlate with age. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting. And if you think about it, your pelvis is kind of your center of balance for your body, right? It's your center point. So I had a professor in my master's degree would always say, if the pelvis isn't happy, nobody's happy in the body. <laughs> Amen. So, and, and what's at the center of our pelvis? It's our pelvic floor muscles. Exactly. So if the pelvis is the center point and the pelvic floor is the center of the center point, um, it stands to reason that if our posture is less than optimal, your pelvic floor is going to be impacted somehow. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. True. And you know, with, just about every other muscle group in the body, we've got a pretty good handle on the dynamics and the way agonist-antagonist pairs relate to each other. And yet the pelvic floor is this, this neglected stepchild that just has somehow escaped the attention or interest of the scientific community and the medical community. I mean, I call it the last fitness issue because most people don't even know they have a pelvic floor, right? I Mm -hmm. like to think I'm aware of all my body parts. But so to learn you have this body part you were unaware of, you know, that should get someone's attention. Not only that, but just how critical it is to your quality of life, right? We Mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time, you know, on the other side of the fence talking about up-training the pelvic floor um, and, and, you know, teach people the Filates technique on a regular basis and a uh, and I think increasing ac- accessibility to an effective efficient program like that is key but also key is recognizing that the pelvic floor can be out of balance in the opposite direction it can it can and and so what can people do that find themselves in the high tone group the non-relaxing pelvic floor disorder, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. It has a lot of names, hypertonus levator ani. There's a really terrible name from decades and decades ago of vaginismus, which just to me smacks with, I don't understand this problem. (laughs) You know, I mean, if (laughs) translated, 
you know, vaginismus just means narrow vagina. If that's the best you can do, or that really encompasses your understanding of what's wrong, then, you know, your patients probably um, aren't going to benefit a great deal uh, from your recommended therapy. And so what can people do if, if they find themselves in this state? We talked about meditation and the potential benefit of diaphragmatic breathing. But mm-hmm. what are some other things people can Learning do? Learning how to breathe is absolutely key. I think, Dr. Crawford, and one thing that I do with people is I, I do do a variety of different assessments with them, looking at which of the muscles that we've talked about earlier might be one of those underperformer non-contributing muscles um, that might be creating that high tone pelvic floor. And then we work on strengthening that. I also do posture assessments with people. What is your posture? How can we work on improving the posture? Because we know if, if, you know, the pelvis is that center point or the pelvis is the kingpin of the body and the pelvis is not in an a more optimal position, we could get a passively shortened pelvic floor just because it's got to work to try to hold your pelvis in a position that's not ideal. It's so interesting to me, you know, my instinct, my nature as a physician, when addressing a problem is to attack that problem directly, right? I mm -hmm. mean, surgeons especially are this way, you know, there's something wrong, take it out. And then, right, you know what I mean? And, and so... And everything will be great. Right, right. And so that tends to be my default approach to problems. But I really like that you have a totally different perspective on this and not say, okay, we're, we're going to treat this high-tone pelvic floor directly, but we're going to try and get a broader view, really understand a gestalt about the way mm-hmm. this muscle is in working in concert or not working in harmony with the other muscle groups and try and create, correct the entire system rather than, and that's fascinating to me. Well, and there's enough out there that takes more of that myopic approach, right? A, A lot of the therapy done is very much focusing on internal release work. Um, what is that? that? So that's more like an, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, it would be more like an internal massage. So right? with you're trying to release... one or two fingers inside the vagina for a woman, yes. inside the yeah. rectum for a man. And they make different kinds of wands that can be inserted that you can use to try to apply pressure to the tissue to release the tight tissue. By putting traction on those short muscles to try and mm-hmm. force them to stretch and lengthen yeah. and then hope they stay that way. Yeah. So, you know, if you go get a massage for any other part of your body, you know how when they get to a tight muscle, they put pressure on it, like a trigger point release, right? They apply pressure to the area, um, kind of temporarily stopping blood flow to that area. When you release your hand off that, you kind of get a surge of blood flow. And we already know that tight Uh, tissue has a lack of blood flow. So it's kind of the same principle. It's just because the pelvic floor is internal, the release work needs to be done internal. There's not a lot you can do. Who does this type of work? There are um, wonderful uh, pelvic floor physical therapists that literally specialize in exactly this. Mm. That is what they do, um, which is fabulous that we have them. You know, 10 years ago, I don't even think this subspecialty of physical therapy even existed. I know it didn't exist 
when I was struggling with nerve damage after I had my son almost 17 years ago. So mm. I'm thankful that we've evolved to that point where we have this subspecialty. At least with so the, the that, American Association of Physical Therapists, mm-hmm. the American Physical Therapy Association, I got to say it right. Um, yes. They have a, a division of women's health physical therapists that have been specifically trained how to assess the mm-hmm. tone of the pelvic floor and perform pelvic floor massage. Isn't yes. It? Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. so, and that, that can, and that can help. Like, yeah, they have biofeedback techniques that they'll utilize mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they incorporate different breathing strategies. So what I found when I started working with people, not everybody wanted to go through more of an invasive approach. Sure. Understandable. Um, so, you know, everybody's different. That's why there's multiple treatment modalities out there, right? There is no one size fits all for every person. So I would get people that would come to me um, because they wanted to have a less invasive approach. I would also get these public floor PTs that would refer people to me in conjunction with them seeing, you know, the PT as well. As a compliment to to what they're doing. Yeah, complementary approach, kind of a collaborative approach, which I love because it only benefits the patient if if everyone's trying to help them feel better imagine um, that. And, and so however it came about that i started working with people um i would tell them initially you know when i first started seeing them i'm like look i i know something's not right with your pelvic floor and i know it's painful and, and i know it hurts and i know it's not i, I know you're not pain catastrophizing it because i understand the physiology of why it's so hypersensitive right but what i want to do is kind of put your pelvic floor on the back burner for a while. Let's look at more of an integrated approach to your whole That's body. the word I was trying to think of. <laughs> integrated, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you can, you know, anytime you have chronic pain or chronic diseases, we, we call that, you know, you have the ability to ruminate over it, right? <laughs> you can be fixated on right. it. It becomes a part of your every waking thought, especially if you're constantly in pain. So one of the things I like to do is is not even really work on the pelvic floor at all. I go through posture assessments, identify what the inhibited muscles are, and we start working on getting those to activate. Um, and we just we work on breathing techniques. So we're kind of working on how do we improve the functioning and the efficiency of your body. Yeah, I love it. And, and, you know, finding the right practitioner to work with is key. And it's somewhat personality dependent, you know, finding somebody that makes you feel comfortable and that you're not being judged and that they don't think you're crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. And then maybe that also takes the focus off the pelvic floor. Maybe that interrupts the cycle of pain, stress, pain, stress right and and by i like to think of it as a nice distraction yeah yeah i think that could that could be beneficial absolutely yeah absolutely so so that's kind of my entire hypothesis i love it i love it when are you going to be done with your phd oh i'm hoping soon covid (laughs) kind of threw a little bit of a monkey wrench (laughs) yeah i hadn't noticed that i know (laughs) This is a shock, I'm sure. Um, so, so things got a little bit delayed as a result of that. Mm. So, do you have another year next, left? Do you think? Or? Yeah, about a year, probably a year, year and a half. Okay, so, wonderful. Well, I just yeah. can't wait to witness your progress along that 
line. How can Thank people you. track you, get a hold of you, follow you? What What's the best way to reach out and communicate with you if people have questions or yeah, need right a consultation? Our website. Mm. Yep. That's so the best either way. the philates.com website, P-F-I-L-A-T-E-S.com. I always make sure you get the F in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, or lifebeforemedicine.com. Either one of those you can get right to me. And I do do Zoom sessions. You know this. I mm-hmm. work one-on-one with people via Pilates, um, via Zoom. So I think that's one of the benefits of the pandemic is that I don't know if we would have ever done Zoom prior to that. I don't think I would have. Um, So it really has kind of broadened our reach and broadened our net as far as who we're able to uh, kind of help. You know, the world is our oyster now. So I do see people literally from all over the world over Zoom. Isn't that marvelous? How lucky are they? Oh, well, how lucky am I? I, I, you know, I love, I love this. I love what I do. And I have a family member with a high tone pelvic floor. So I have a huge vested interest in finding non-invasive solutions. Because sometimes the last thing this demographic of people want is to be poked and prodded continuously. Enough. Yeah, I hear you. That is fascinating to me. I'm so grateful that I get to work with you. Um, you have contributed so dearly to the Filates method and now to life uh, before medicine. Um, and, uh, I really don't know what I'd do without you. I just think it's great that, uh, <laughs> that I get to have you in my professional life. So thank you for well, thank that. Thank you. And the feeling is likewise. Oh, thank you so much. People, thank you as well for sharing your time and attention with us. This is Life Before Medicine. We're here today with Heather Dibke. I'm Dr. Bruce Crawford. We're going to stay in touch. You stay in touch too. Next week, we're going to talk to Dr. Kent Sassy, colorectal surgeon and bariatric surgeon, and we'll be discussing obesity from the doctor's perspective first. And subsequent to that, we'll have a part two with a nutritionist that you can look forward to. 